Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 18, and we're going to be talking about Vue in enterprise apps. And today, I have on my co-host, Dan Wallin. How's things going, Dan? Going good, John. What have you been up to lately? Oh, I just got back from the holidays, and I'm working on actually creating a Vue workshop so you and I can put one together to do coming up this spring. Been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, what have you been doing? Uh, I have been in front end, back end, and cloud, and Kubernetes, and Dockerland lately. I'm working on this labs, video lab project, and yeah, everything you can think of, I think I have in this app. <laughs> oh, that's your lab tool that we've been using. Is that something you're, you've been uh, publicly talking about yet? Not yet. Not yet. Ooh. So it's coming. So everybody yeah, who's so, listening, uh, shh. Yeah, don't tell anyone. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. You want to tell folks what it's about? Uh, I'll give a nutshell version. Yeah, it's uh, instead of just watching videos, this is like, uh, think of a video course, but with hands-on labs integrated. And uh, I'll leave it at that, John. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And Dan's been kind of uh, beta or alpha testing it, I guess you would say, in some of your workshops. I've been going pretty yep. good. I've been doing with John. Yep. Sweet. And today we have on a special guest. His name is Chris Fritz. It's a return guest. Thank you for coming back on, Chris. Hey, great to be back. Yeah, and Chris, you've done quite a bit yourself. Uh, what have you been up to over the holidays? Ooh, what have I been up to? Well, in December, here's what I tried to do. I tried to take a break from all of my paid work, and I didn't plan it out very well. So it was not as much of a break as I needed, I think. <laughs> Does that mean the computer lured you back? <laughs> it, it means that there were, there were a lot of things that um, I just couldn't practically completely drop um, without leaving people in a bad spot because I did insufficient preparation for that break. I think you suffer the same disease that we all do in this industry, <laughs> which is it's really hard to tear away sometimes. <laughs> I'll tell you, but that's, I, my, that's my goal on vacation, right, Chris? Is you go on vacation and you actually take vacation. Yeah, I, I do want to try again next year, though, and I, I think I can do better. <laughs> Why not just take the whole year off? How about the three of us make that pack now? We'll just like take that. the year off and come back later. Here's the thing. I still have bills. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that mortgage I've got. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not yet quite like independently wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. So for the folks who don't remember Chris being on the show, which was just a couple episodes ago, uh, Chris came on and talked about code reviews. And Chris is an educator-engineer hybrid on the Vue core team. And we talked about, I said code reviews before, but Chris is uniquely adept at being on this episode where we really get to talk about how do we use Vue to build enterprise applications. And I guess we should start, Chris, by asking you, what, what is an enterprise application? Is that even the right term to use here? Yeah, so it's, it's a term that I use sometimes uh, for just like applications that like big businesses, like I think, you know, Enterprise is one of those things that you know, people who are in enterprise environments often like know that they're in an enterprise environment, even if they don't know exactly what enterprise means. Um, and 
what I associate it with is um, large teams, you know, so it's, you know, I, ideally like more than a few people, you know, maybe even like a dozen people um, working together on potentially a large app, you know, so it, it could be, it could be either of those, you know, it's like either a large app that you're going to have to, you know, build and maintain over a long period of time. Uh, and usually a lot of people, and there are some unique constraints that are different than, you know, when you're building, you know, a, a side project by yourself, for example, or building like a, a real like big app just completely on your own. You touched on something real quick, Chris, that I think really defines the ESET, and that is uh, maintenance. Because having worked for a startup back in the day, uh, I have to admit, I don't think we worried as much about maintenance in that. Whereas with enterprises, you know, you just never know who's going to be on the team and what's going to change. So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's not just about validating the idea and making it to like next quarter. Exactly. Yeah, there's, I think the environment we all live in really shapes, I don't think it, I know it, it shapes the way we think about things. Because I've been on teams where there's like a different team that does everything. Like you're, some of the team designs the requirements. Another team goes off and works with the business and the stakeholders. Another team actually writes the code. Another team actually deploys the code and then there's a team for CI and then there's a team for CD and it goes on and on and on. And those kind of environments are interesting uh, because the challenge isn't so much the project as it is the communication between the different teams. Mm-hmm. And then you've got shops where it's like two people and they are everything. And maintenance is very, very much on their minds because they have to make sure that anything they write is something that they can maintain versus, oh, well, that's, you know, that's for that sustainment team over there that's going to handle it. Yeah, there are some different constraints in an enterprise environment too. Like like you said, when you have so many teams and you have to communicate between them, uh, but you still often have deadlines that you have to meet. And so there are some things where it's like, yeah, we could do that. We could have like the backend completely redesign the API so that we could do this thing that would be pretty cool and make our lives easier. But that is not going to happen in the time frame that we need it to happen. So we have to work with what we have in many cases. Uh, or Or make some compromises, um, you know, where they could do, you know, a little bit of work that won't take them that much time. Um, and in the meantime, we still have something that we can get started on while they're working on that, you know, organizing all of that can, can be a pain. Yeah. That's always a challenge. So what Chris are you finding as far as, you know, enterprises you're working with or different teams? Um, and this is kind of hard to throw out a percentage I know, but like what percentage, and I'll give you my feedback maybe after, are you seeing that maybe they were traditional, what I'll call server rendered apps, you know, Java, .NET, PHP, something like that, that are now moving to something like Vue or another type of spa? Yeah, I, I don't think a single page application is necessarily right for everybody. And, and when I say single page application, I mean your entire front end, you know, is, is managed client side, um, you know, in a big JavaScript app, you know, instead of you know, what we've had in the past in many cases, these server rendered views, you know, with, you know, server templates uh, that are pushed to the front end. So instead, in in a spa, a server would just push basically a generic like HTML page that the front end would take over and actually turn it into the page that it's supposed to be, depending on the route and depending on the the data that it gets from the server. Yeah, and I I totally agree with you. Um, I think I think some groups, unfortunately, hear from a conference or a speaker, 
hey, we should move to a spa and, you know, not even thinking about ramifications there. And uh, I think there's good, you know, pros and cons. So, yeah. And, and view is a little bit unique in this regard, too, in that we work very hard on making it easy to introduce view into your app in a wide variety of ways. So a lot of, a lot of frameworks uh, really want to be your entire front end. Uh, and if they're not your entire front end, they'll kind of fight you on it. <laughs> you know, it, it can feel a little bit like pulling teeth. Um, but with Vue, uh, you can drop it into a single page um, and use it, you know, similarly to jQuery. You don't need like a build process or anything either. You know, you could use, you know, whatever you're using on the back end to, to manage your styles and stuff like that and, and drop in some Vue code and, you know, have it wrap a, a single page or have it wrap all of your pages and maybe just use Vue to uh, add some extra like rich interactivity where you really need it. And everything else can be the same like server render templates because, you know, maybe in most cases your needs aren't very complex and you already know how to do these things on the server side. And it might not make sense to like completely reinvent your entire front end just because you need like a more interactive dashboard. John and I, uh, we've kind of called those mini spas where it's, you don't need the whole app. You just need part of it. So I totally yeah. agree. In fact, I'm using Vue right now for a little shopping cart thing where it's not the whole app, but it was perfect for the shopping cart piece. So Beautiful. Yeah. So when it comes to enterprises, Chris, I know you probably work with some groups that have, you know, a fairly tremendous amount of lines of code. Mm -hmm. How many tend to like to just go with maybe ES2015 and up or are other groups switching to TypeScript at all for Vue? It's, it's a real mix and it really depends on where people are coming from, like where the team is coming from. Uh, in cases where the team has a lot of, you know, TypeScript experience already, or they have a lot of C-sharp or Java experience, I find that TypeScript is often like a pretty natural fit. Um, and I, I really, really like TypeScript, and I really like the tooling for TypeScript. I, I think I, there's very little doubt in my mind that it'll eventually become like the de facto for everyone to use, uh, especially because like the tooling is going to get so good that you know we're eventually going to have tools like in C sharp. There's there's ReSharper for refactoring, which is so awesome. I can't wait to have something like that for for JavaScript. Yeah, a lot of that works uh, really nice out of the box with VS Code these days. But I'd like to dive into some of that TypeScript stuff with you too. Yeah, yeah. Th th there's some of that, but we're not quite at ReSharper levels yet. No, we're definitely not. Uh, and I think TypeScript's the key there, right? Because that's why ReSharper mm -hmm. can do what it does in tooling yeah. like Visual Studio or, or WebStorm, etc. And, and that's where it'll become like a really indispensable tool, especially for larger apps when you need to make those, those big refactors that could otherwise like take half a day and instead, you know, you can do in minutes. Like that's a huge productivity boost. Um, and, and can really like unlock a lot of, a lot of options and make you less afraid to, to make those big refactors. Speaking of being less afraid, I think it's time for us to go to a quick ad from our sponsor. Ward here, inviting you, no, encouraging you to attend the Dev Intersection Conference in Orlando in June 2019. Dev Intersection is one of my favorite conferences and is perfect for those of you whose JavaScript life intersects the Microsoft ecosystem. John Papa, Dan Walleen, and I will be there speaking and giving workshops, and so will many of my heroes. 
Look at that list of terrific speakers on the website and be impressed. These folks are as eager to meet you as you are to meet them. The opportunity to talk directly to speakers and share experiences with other attendees is why you should go. It's why I always go and come home with fresh ideas about topics I knew well and insights into technologies I've been promising myself for weeks that I'd get into someday. This conference kicks doors in. Learn about it at devintersection.com, mark your calendar for June 10th through the 13th, 2019, and get a discount when you sign up with the code PAPA, P-A-P-A. See you there. And we're back. And Chris, I I really do want to talk about TypeScript for a minute because it's something that Dan and I I love, Uh, and not just because of Angular. We've been doing TypeScript since since it first came out, right, Dan? Yeah, we even used it with like jQuery back in the day, if you remember. Yeah, that's right. We did when jQuery was like the bomb, and which still is in a lot of ways. But the thing I see with TypeScript, which kind of drives me a little nuts right now, is when I use TypeScript with Vue, and I've written a few blog posts on this, mm-hmm. um, let's just start with the CLI. Like when you start with the CLI, it gives you two options with TypeScript. It's like, hey, you want to use TypeScript? And you're like, absolutely. And the CLI says, okay, would you like that with classes or without classes? Pretty good question to ask. And if you do it with classes, it's like, You've, you know, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. You've got the whole thing and everything is TypeScript. You've got decorators everywhere and, and it works great. If you don't choose the class approach, you end up with, uh, you're still using JavaScript, but you just set the language to TS, uh, you know, so the script tag knows that in a mm-hmm. view single file component. And I found that that works a little bit, but there's still parts that like, it's it doesn't always work inside my editor. And then there's a third route you can take, which one of your core team members wrote an article on this. Uh, I forget the gentleman's name. You can remind me, but uh, Rahul probably. Yes, Rahul. Uh, it was a great article. Rahul Kajan. Yeah. He talked about using interfaces and types inside your code, so you can like do that with the data or the props, for example. Uh, and that works mostly, but not one hundred percent of the time either. So I'm kind of curious if I go the whole route of let me do use classes and decorate everything. Everything works. But those other in-between routes, which are really attractive to me, because maybe then I could write mostly JavaScript, but just use types where I need them. Yeah. Is that something that's evolving? It is something that's evolving um, on many fronts. So, for example, uh, one thing that I've I've thought about and and you know and talked some about with uh, people on the TypeScript team that I think would be really cool is if we had maybe like a, a file parser level uh, to the API, where for certain files. Um, you could add a parser level that allows you to add certain type definitions, um, like sort of implicitly, uh, to to the code. So if you know that this is going, like these files are going to be view components, like .view files are always going to be view components, then there are some assumptions that you can make about how that's going to be structured, um, and and essentially like add a bunch of type definitions that otherwise would be like really a pain to to make sure like everything is really really well typed uh, and you'd have to go through a lot of um, ceremony and boilerplate like every time you were building a view component yeah uh, you know if you're if you're not doing it you know the the way that view script really really likes and this would not only be useful for view but would be useful for a lot of things and there you know this is something that that might not be feasible it's still something that that has to be discussed and you know one of the things that uh, is definitely very important to consider is if this is something that would slow down, uh, you know, TypeScript compilation uh, or 
you know, in, in IntelliSense, other parts of the tool chain, like right. keeping TypeScript fast is is also incredibly important. And so, you know, it's it's and keeping view development fast, right? Because yeah, yeah. Frankly, so I mean, writing TypeScript takes longer than to writing JavaScript because there's more to it. Yep. Yeah. So it's all about finding the right compromises. Everything, <laughs> you know, just the, writing the tooling and also uh, you know developing the apps. It's all about compromises. Yeah, that's kind of why I like the, I mean, I like TypeScript with classes and decorators too. And I do that in Angular. And so doing it in Vue is just, just second nature for me. But I really like the idea like Rahul had here was, let's just use js.comments with that type. And we can define what our array is going to be, for example. It's not just an array. It's an array of items of this particular type with these properties. Uh, and in a, in a vacuum, that works great. But then you have an app with, 200 components, and now you've got JS docs for all your types everywhere. And at that point, it's kind of like, why don't I just use TypeScript? I mean, am I thinking about that wrong? Or Well, I'd say it, it doesn't, like, it's something that I want to work even better than it does. I have found some edge cases where that doesn't quite work simply because, uh, you know, there's, you know, some bug in the in the VS Code tooling where, you know, this kind of comment isn't yet translated to the correct uh, TypeScript in their tooling so that you can get the correct IntelliSense and everything. Because that's that's what a lot of people want uh, when they're using TypeScript. They just care about the IntelliSense. And that's where JSDoc can be really, really useful. Um, and you can even, if you have like a, a jsconfig.json uh, file, if you set checkjs to true, um, in editors like VS Code, you can even get compilation errors. <laughs> so, like your editor will give you a loud warning when you've done something that is uh, is technically invalid, uh, just like TypeScript would, uh, which is really really cool. Uh, but yeah, it, it's the the tooling is imperfect at this point. You know, so it's it won't work as well as TypeScript with classes and decorators. And in uh, Vue 3, uh, we're actually going to have a, um, you know, this is almost, almost definitely um, a new class-based syntax for components. That will be an option. The, the object-based syntax is not going away. So this will be another option that will uh, make typing in TypeScript much, much easier, even than it is now in Vue, in Vue 2. And, and we're actually working with the TypeScript team to make that experience as good as possible. Yeah, we should call out that uh, Sarah uh, Drasner, who works in the same team and organization that I do at Microsoft, she works with the TypeScript folks, and I know you do as well, Daniel Rosenwasser and a bunch of those folks. So this is only going to be a better story. I kind of chalk this up to be, it's just an evolution in where we're going to go with this, because one thing it didn't like about Angular with TypeScript is that it didn't give you the option to use plain old JavaScript, really. I mean, it's, it's yeah. difficult to use plain JavaScript with Angular. Yeah, I mean, technically, there's the option, but I mean, I've I've talked to people even on the Angular team who are no, like, you just yeah, don't but you do shouldn't. it. No, <laughs> it's it's a monstrosity, you it, but you really don't, really exactly. Don't. So it'd be kind of nice if the tools. I mean, and really, it's not just their their control. This is one of those things that's uh, not talking about Vue specifically. The Vue core team, the TypeScript team, and the VS Code team all have to come together to really make this light up. Yeah, and and the TypeScript team has been like hugely cooperative uh, and, and, and a huge help in you know, helping us provide the best experience we can to our users. 
Do you see a tendency to lean more towards classes and decorators, Chris, or more towards just regular functions in JavaScript? If people are going to use TypeScript, I recommend using um, classes and decorators. Although, um, in many cases that you need decorators now, uh, you shouldn't need decorators uh, in the future, I don't think, uh, for Vue 3. I was just going to say there, there is one caveat I will say to the TypeScript story. And this isn't a limitation of TypeScript or anything wrong with TypeScript. But I found that for a lot of people who aren't used to writing a strongly typed language, uh, there are some patterns in JavaScript, uh, really that have nothing to do with Vue, that really just aren't a good fit with a TypeScript app. And TypeScript will really fight you on it or, or make it you know, really difficult for you to type those things well. Uh, and there are some limitations of uh, TypeScript, too, that don't exist in some languages like, like C-sharp, um, like, like being able to do method overloading and things like that, because TypeScript has to maintain backward compatibility um, with JavaScript. Um, so it's, it's not, TypeScript isn't a, isn't a perfect story. It's doing the best that it can, giving the limitations. Uh, but I do find a lot of people who don't know how to build TypeScript apps sometimes spending a lot of time on the typing uh, at the cost of doing things like unit tests, which in my experience are much, much more likely to create a robust app at this point than types. Uh, I, I don't see as many bugs uh, caught by types uh, than I do from great unit tests. And I'd rather teams spend time on unit tests if they're not familiar with TypeScript or other strongly typed languages. I think it's a balance, right? You want a little of all of these things, end-to-end -end tests, unit tests, and proper tooling. But for the tooling side, I wish the tooling just did it for me as opposed to me. Like the falling down I have with TypeScript. When people say TypeScript all day, all the time, and this is from a guy who loves it. I love TypeScript. Yeah, I like yeah. it too. I really don't like when people are spending, I'll have somebody say, hey, John, help me with this typing issue. And they spent like three days trying to type one function. Yeah. And in the end, it's like, you know what? It's okay. Dude, make it an any. Use an any and call it a day. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. But, you know? but people don't know. And they don't, like, it's a slippery slope. You know, they, they don't, like, especially if they're not familiar with it, um, they, they don't know where the line is to say, um, like, okay, this is what we should make in any. Because they're afraid, like, well, eventually everything's just going to be any's. And then, like, why are we even using TypeScript? Exactly. Well, and, you know, I think it really goes back to you when you introduced the concept of enterprise. You mentioned that, you know, you can have these teams that are used to working with frameworks. And I think if what I find in doing some of the training we do is, you know, if they have a Java or a .NET or a Python-type background, they latch on to TypeScript really quickly because, like you said, it makes sense. But when you come from a non-strongly typed language and then all of a sudden have to jump into that, it's, you know, kind of jumping into a, a rodeo ring and there's all these bowls coming at you, I guess. You're like, whoa, what, what am I getting into here? You know, do you do, say this from common experience, Dan? I do. I jump into <laughs> rings a lot. And, you know, I used to be a cowboy. No, <laughs> but I, I agree with you. I find that uh, like in this app I'm working on, uh, I'm using TypeScript. But it's immensely helpful because it's pretty big at this point. And so refactoring, it's not so much that I'm using the types for bugs, like you said, 
It's more about I can quickly do something and instantly get that feedback that, oh, you screwed that up, you know, before I even run any tests. So going back to what John said, it's all it's like I always think of that scale, uh, the balancing scale, you know, and if you're too far to the right or too far to the left, you might want to think about getting more to the center. So. so switching gears just a little, Chris, uh, you also mentioned something that's near and dear to me, and that's organization of your components and the structure of your project. Uh, and you've written up quite a bit on this topic. You want to kind of just share with folks how you think about this? Yeah. So one really common organizational scheme I see for components is to uh, have things and have all of your components in, in deeply nested subfolders. So, for example, uh, you might have a dashboard part of your app, and so you have a dashboard folder, uh, and underneath that you have a uh, sidebar folder, and underneath that you have a navigation folder, and underneath that you have like a button folder, and then you have like an index.view <laughs> or something like that. Um, or, or maybe you don't have a button folder, maybe you have a button.view at that point. Um, and... One of the reasons I don't really like that organization pattern is because it can sometimes lead to like really lazy naming um, and can sometimes lead to cases where it's really hard to find the components that you're looking for simply due to limitations of the tooling that we have available to us and how that tooling is implemented. So the quick file switchers in most editors, usually that'll highlight the the name of the file. And then in gray, you'll also have the path to that file, uh, you know, as sort of an, an afterthought. And I've seen cases where there are maybe, you know, 20 different button.view components. And so navigating to the correct button sometimes becomes quite a bit of a pain. And then also with everything like deeply nested like this, in cases where you want to... Um, where it might make more sense to reuse a component, uh, there end up being these like isolated parts of the app that that you know about, and then there's the other parts of the app that are always hidden away in folders that you never see. And so there can, in many cases, be you know like three different modals that really should be shared between different parts of the app, but you know you needed it first in the dashboard, and then you just reinvented that concern. Uh, when you needed it in another part of your app, and then you reinvented it again in another part of your app because you're you're not thinking outside that folder. You're not thinking about your app holistically, and so I I actually really like to keep um, all of my components, even with hundreds of components, uh, in one components folder, and use names like the the name of the the component to to structure things. And in the view style guide. Um, I offer some some rules for naming those those components, naming those files. Uh, so, for example, you know, I try to go generally from uh, like a least specific to to most specific. So, for a, a to do list, uh, you might have a to do list component, and then a to do list um, item, and then a to do list item uh, delete button. And when you're looking at those, those components, you know, in a sidebar or something, or even just, you know, searching for to-do list in the quick file switcher, you see all of those components together. And so you have the same benefit of the folders. And actually, I'd, I'd argue that you have more of a benefit 
um, than the folders because with the quick file switcher, you can just type in to-do list and you get all of a list of all of the things related to the to-do list. So in your style guide, and I put the link here in the show notes for folks, uh, I'm looking at one specific example here where it's talking about base component names. And this could apply to other things too, even single component, single instance component names you have down here. It looks like you're saying, uh, make them two words, make the first word be the thing it's describing, and then the second word be uh, the type of component in some cases, like button, table, or icon. Is that- it, it doesn't have to be two words. Uh, just for compliance with uh, the HTML spec, like custom elements should be multi-word. Uh, and also to to prevent um, like you know uh, conflicts with future HTML elements. Yeah, in the Angular world, we use uh, prefixes like app name prefixes to avoid conflicts or things like that. But we don't actually put them in the file name because um, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have every single file prefixed with the same prefix, yeah. right? And so, so for the for the base components, um, that's actually a pattern that I use for components that. Um, are really, really basic to your app, like sort of on an element level, where they tend to be like pretty generic to your app, not not to a specific part of your app. Uh, and you tend to use them all over the place. So for example, there might be a, a base button component, uh, which you'll use in place of the actual button element. Uh, and you'll use that all over your app. And something nice about having a specific prefix like base for all of those is that uh, if you're using something like Webpack, then you can have Webpack dynamically go through all of your base prefix components and globally register them so that you don't have to import them into every single application where you want to use them, which can really slow down development and, and doesn't really offer a lot of benefit since, like like I said, these components are being used all over the place. That You're probably not going to refactor your app and then no longer have buttons. And since you brought that up, because I, I find that interesting, and you can do the similar kind of thing with CSS with Webpack too. What can you share with everybody? What's the mechanism that if I wanted in Webpack to grab all of my base components and uh, make them globally available, so I don't have to inject them into every single component? What is where do I do that? So you'd use Webpack's require.context API, and and I actually can provide a link to how I do that in uh, View Enterprise Boilerplate uh, in the show notes. If do we have show notes? We have show notes. So yeah, any links you give us, we'll go ahead and put in there. I've been trying to add as we've been talking along, but I'm, I'm not catching all of them. So that would be great. Yeah, in fact, I, I have a, a lot of examples for, for a lot of the things that I'm talking about uh, in View Enterprise Boilerplate, including documentation, if you want to read more about you know, my thoughts on TypeScript and, and things like that. Yeah, anything you've got, I think would be helpful. And so folks uh, understand... I assume it's not just you writing the style guide, but you have had a large hand in writing the style guide for Vue, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I did. I, I, I think I did write the entire style guide, but it's not like I just came up with things and then the universe just has to deal with it. Like these, these were discussed before they were made into rules. So, did you write this part here that I'm reading verbatim? It says, "If you don't follow these guidelines, the view police will come to your house and chase you down." Is that? Did you write that part? No, I believe I wrote something like the opposite of that. <laughs> and I raised that up because, uh, as somebody who's written style guides, I I find it amazing that you have to write something in there that says, "Hey, look, these are recommendations," but you know, it's not like somebody's going to chase you down in the street if you didn't follow these things. Yeah, and also I encourage people to break the rules if they if they want to. 
um, I only encourage them to break them mindfully. And I, I, and I try to lay out some of the, uh, some of the caveats. And, and in many cases, you know, I say like, you know, in this case, like there are a few different things that you could do that are really equally acceptable. Yeah. I, I find that uh, a lot of times teams that, especially when they're new to this world, tend to take it as gospel, I guess you could say. And uh, I always like to emphasize the word guideline. It's not a set of hard and fast rules. It's not a you know, the view police are going to show up, like John said, it's a set of guidelines. And I, I'm the same. I, uh, having been through a lot of it, I agree with like 99% of it, but you know, every team does things a little bit differently. So it just is a matter of time. I, I always say, Hey, start with that, you know, grab it, put it in a repository somewhere that everybody on your team can contribute to, and then come up with your own so that now when you get new hires or contractors or whatever, you just refer them to that one spot and you know, you're good to go. Chris, one thing I don't see mentioned here a lot, and I, and I sense there's an intention behind this, is folder structure. Can you, can you talk about what you particularly prefer with folder structure for Vue apps? Uh, in general? Or what do you mean? Or for a component specifically? Well, I mean, you're designing an app, and one of the things I find a lot of developers get stuck on, including myself, is if it's a big blank canvas, you're like, ah, I've got this large app i got to plan out. Where should I be putting all of my things, my components? shared stuff, for example. Shared things, yeah. yeah. So I personally don't care for most things, (laughs) and I think it usually doesn't matter that much because a lot of times it's it's pretty simple to refactor. Um, like, where do you keep, um, like, a utilities folder? Uh, and do you call it utils or utilities? Or do you call it helpers? Um, or do you call it functions? <laughs> Should you even have a utilities folder? Should you even have you a utilities folder? Them you want them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't try to answer those questions for people in the boilerplate because I try to keep it relatively specific to view things. And so, so there are other things like you won't see like a services folder, which, um, you know, I'll include in some apps uh, because, you know, whether people have a services folder uh, and whether that's useful to them uh, really totally depends on their application uh, and, and depends on the team. And, and what the team has done and what they've been successful with in the past. Like, I, I don't think it's really useful forcing a convention on people when, when they already have something that's working for them. I agree with you almost entirely. The only place I, I would say offer differing opinion is when somebody's new to the product, new to the tool and the environment, and they have to start somewhere. And I think this is where the CLI comes in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, CLI and, and boilerplates, like the Enterprise Boilerplate, yeah. Yeah, and I put a link into your to your repo to the boilerplate because I think that's a great place to. Uh, it's actually what I used myself when I started using uh, Vue a while back. And look at how are people actually designing their apps? Because my biggest frustration was I literally looked at about twenty different apps in the web that were well known from people, mm-hmm. and I found twenty different structures. Yeah, and while that's okay, I'm like, cool. That means I can do what I want. In the same sense, I'm like. I wonder what drove them in these directions, just so I can learn from those experiences. And I think at least having a starting point from the VCLI is, uh, it's an it's a nice, very simple pattern to say, hey, look, here's something out of the box that at least works. Uh, I don't have to wear, worry where I put my webpack file, for example. Yeah, and actually, if you're using VCLI, you don't have to put it anywhere. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I like because that. we manage that for you. <laughs> I do like that. Although I end up using the view config file quite a bit. Yeah, I, I find myself using the view config file in, in most projects too to do a little bit of a custom 
little bit of customization, especially to you know set up like a, a dev server proxy or something like that. Yeah, and I'll put a link to the show notes in there because that's that's the first thing I tell people to do: <laughs> create the dev server yeah. proxy. <laughs> Can you, uh, Chris, tell us a little more about the enterprise boilerplate that you mentioned? Like, what what are some of the things that's going to give people out of the box there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, first to give a little background, basically I created that, that was something that I was using for myself whenever a client asked me to greenfield a new project. Like I, I would have a, a boilerplate that I would base it off that worked well for most teams. Uh, and I found myself doing the same kinds of things for almost every enterprise project. <laughs> Uh, so there was actually very little modification that often needed to be made to that boilerplate. Uh, and then I decided, you know what, like, this seems like something that's pretty generic that like anybody could use for enterprise apps. Uh, and as part of improving it, like I'd help, I'd love to not only get feedback from my clients, but also from anyone else who's building enterprise apps like in the wild. Uh, And so I created this repo, uh, as a way to further develop, uh, and, share that information so that other people can can use this boilerplate. Uh, it's part boilerplate and also like extremely well commented and well documented so that some people, even when they're not greenfielding, will use it as a study guide to sort of figure out like, oh, like what are some different decisions that that Chris made? Um, and what are some some lessons that he's learned from his own experience and from the community? And how can I apply some of these lessons to you know, improve the developer experience and my applications uh, without completely rewriting it. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's podcast is sponsored by NativeScript, a free and open source JavaScript framework for building truly native iOS and Android apps. With NativeScript, you code in JavaScript or TypeScript using the popular frameworks Angular and Vue to leverage the power of native APIs and UIs. NativeScript is a lot like React Native, but for Angular and Vue. With NativeScript, you use the tools and techniques you already know, like CSS and NPM, to build native apps for multiple platforms from a single code base. Check it out at nativescript.org and get started with NativeScript today using just your web browser and a smartphone. And we're back and we're talking with Chris Fritz here about Vue in the Enterprise and I don't think today this conversation could be complete, Chris, unless we bring up the topic of mobile. So we hear that Vue can work in mobile. Can you describe kind of like, of course it can, but describe what your experience has been with building Vue apps for mobile and what recommendations you give to people? A lot of people, first question, can I use Vue for mobile apps? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so, Some of my top recommendations for mobile apps are actually uh, NativeScript Vue uh, and Ionic. And uh, I've also had a lot of people, you know, very happy with with Framework Seven. Uh, if you speak Chinese, a lot of people really like Weeks, but the the English docs for Weeks um, uh, aren't quite uh, up to the same level of the Chinese docs. So I, I, I'd recommend really like one of those options that I mentioned. And I've never talked to anyone who chose any of those options and like couldn't get working what they wanted to work and wasn't really happy with it. And the the code sharing for, uh, you know, Ionic or, or NativeScript, you know, will, will look a little bit differently. Uh, and, and for Framework 7, uh, depending on, like, the, the specifics of that framework, there, there aren't really view-specific things there. But generally, like, you can share 
like a lot of HTML. You can share a lot of CSS. You can definitely reuse a lot of JavaScript. Uh, and I find uh, a lot of people being really, really successful in that approach. Uh, it's often not the case that you'll have your um, your mobile app and your web app necessarily just like in the same code base, but there are a lot of things that you might share between that code base. And I, I've seen that very, very often. And sometimes those can be in the same model repo. And in fact, I, I often recommend that so that uh, sharing between those repos is a lot easier. What type of, uh, from an enterprise standpoint, one of the things that I see a lot of teams debate is, do we just do what I call a web browser mobile, you know, a responsive design mm -hmm. yeah. versus some of the stuff you started to touch on, more of a native approach? Do you have a feel for what you think is more appropriate? I mean, obviously the answer is it depends on your team. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and depends on the use case. Exactly. Uh, but I, I, my recommendation usually is to, you know, make a, a fully responsive website because you'll want that anyway. And then you can decide later on if you need a web app but the, or if you need a mobile app. But I, I think there are a lot of compelling reasons to not have a mobile app, actually, in, in many I'm cases. I totally agree with you there. Like, yeah, and from the, from the statistics that I've seen, um, like for the, for the sites that, uh, that you open up and you immediately see you know, a little message saying, hey, could you please like, or, or, or hey, we have a mobile app. Do you want to use it? I think in like 40% of the time, like people just immediately hit the back button <laughs> when they see those messages. And I admit, I am there sometimes. I am too. Uh, and it, it actually really, really upsets me with Reddit. <sighs> yeah, I'm the same with Medium. Uh, yeah. you know, they, I have the app installed, but I actually normally just go to the browser. So. And, and the, web, the web app is fine. Yeah, it works great. That's why every time they pop it up, I'm like, I don't need this. <laughs> and often when I'm using something like Reddit, like I'm browsing the, the web more generally. And so then when I hit back, like it does something differently in the app than what I wanted to do. Yes. Yeah. So Chris, what wouldn't be complete uh, as we're approaching the end of the show here to talk about enterprise apps, unless we talked about things that kind of generally come up with at large apps. And some of those things are, hey, how do you optimize your app for performance? How do you, this usually goes along with uh, some subtopics, like how do you do lazy loading? Uh, how do you make sure that you get small bundle sizes? How do you get rid of dead code removal? How do you test your applications? Uh, do you have any words of advice for people on when they get these larger apps, things they can do either up front or on the back end or all the way through the process that will help them with this? Gosh, well, which one should I start with? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you pick. There's so many we could do on for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, then let's start with uh, dead code removal. That's one of the last ones you mentioned. In terms of in terms of dead code removal, uh, I strongly like while you can globally register view components, uh, I strongly recommend only globally registering those base components. Uh, and what globally registering them does is makes them available to use in any view template uh, without having to import them into that file and and register them locally within that component. And the reason I I recommend that is because for other components, uh, there are going to be times when you find yourself like stop using a component um, or not needing that component inside of 
uh, you know, certain pages or certain like subparts of your application. And if you globally register everything, what's going to happen is even if you do smart things like route level code splitting, which I'll talk about in a second, then all of your components will always be included in that like base bundle that users have to download just to get the app started, just to get it working. Uh, now, speaking of route level code splitting, uh, there's a, a feature that Webpack offers uh, with their import function that allows you to uh, lazy load routes. And again, in Vue Enterprise Boilerplate, I have an example of this in my uh, routes file, where uh, whenever a user goes to a route, uh, they'll only download the files that are necessary for that specific route. And when they navigate to a new route, then they'll download the files necessary for that route. And an advantage of this is like I, I've seen a lot of cases where, you know, maybe there's some kind of like admin dashboard in the application and it's used by like 5% of your users because only 5% of your users are ever admins. But without doing some kind of code splitting, all of your users have to download like all of that admin dashboard code. And maybe it's like half of your app even even though they'll never see the admin dashboard, which doesn't make sense, right? So this way, only when users who are authenticated to access the admin dashboard um, try to navigate to that page, will they actually download the files that they need? And so this can give you like much better performance in terms of uh, time to interactive and that, that first boot up of your app. These are great tips, and I know... I know that in different technologies, there's different ways to do lazy loading. Uh, in Vue, you can just simply lazy load using a function on a component even. And how do you recommend, I guess, if let's say we have a situation where we've got a component and it's maybe a main page somewhere, and that page uses a subcomponent like a, a, maybe you've got a base button like you talked about earlier. And then you've got another main page that's a component that also uses that base button. If you've got this base button that's used in multiple places, when you lazy load one component versus the other, that base button comes across to the first one, right? So uh, there's usually like a, a common bundle that uh, with all of the files that are, that are shared between the bundles. So, so things like base button that are used in multiple bundles will be in that common bundle, which is always downloaded. And this is what Webpack figures out for you with exactly you? Is that right. Yeah, this, this is a is, question, by the way, not a yeah. statement. <laughs> yeah, this is what Webpack yeah. figures out for you. So it'll it basically analyze your like your dependency tree uh, in your files uh, and figures out what's common, pulls out what's common into that file that is always downloaded when users visit your application, and then the parts of your application that are only used on very specific parts of your app, those are only downloaded. Uh, when, when necessary, when they're actually needed. And is there a way to preload, like intelligently say, you know what, I think this bundle is going to be needed later, but yet I don't want to download it eagerly up front? Yeah, there, there, there are ways to do that. Um, and there, there are multiple kinds of strategies. For example, there, there are libraries that um, make it easier, make it so that when they think the user is heading towards like a certain link that it'll start pre-downloading like the uh, the resources for that link 
You're talking like preload JS and some of these other ones. That yeah, are yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do have you had an experience with any of those? Um, Vue CLI, I, I do. I do have some experience. Um, you know, it can be uh, sometimes a little bit of a pain, but I mean, the, what Vue likes to do, and and this often works um, a little bit better in the sense that it's less things that you have to worry about. Um, what Vue CLI sets up for you by default is we'll have, you know, some generic, you know, the, the things that you need to download um, immediately will be um, will be listed in uh, your script as, as as something that needs to be downloaded before the page finishes. And then we use like the preload attribute. I'm trying to think. This is the kind of stuff that like you barely ever touch except for when you need it, and then you you do it once in tools yeah, like the VCLI. Um, and to be fair, I'm looking up this on the internet as we're talking. This yeah. is the, the link relative prefetch stuff, right? Yeah, that sounds yeah, familiar. Yeah, exactly. That sounds like probably what it's it is that we do. Yeah, so, so what it is is like the other the other files, the other parts of the app that you might need, we start prefetching them uh, in case you might need them. And so that way, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't block user interaction or anything. And the VCLI will set some of this up for you if you do, is it modern mode? I, I think even without modern mode, it sets that up for you. Okay, I'll have to check that there. Uh, we've talked about the VCLI quite a bit, so I put links to that also in the show notes because I just think that's a great thing to use for not only for starting your project out, but then also building your app and then at the end, making sure you've got all these optimizations in. Yeah. Because um, it takes a lot of the dirty work out of out of your hands. <laughs> if you do all this by hand, it's rough. Yeah, what yeah. we try to do with VCLI is basically make as many optimizations for you so that you never even have to think about it. Like, you know, you just mentioned modern mode, which for people who aren't aware, um, in a lot of cases, you might find that, you know, 98% of your users are using evergreen browsers, but you really have to keep support for that 2% that isn't. Um, but the downside is that when when using um, tools like Babel, you know, which includes like ba- polyfills and helpers, um, you, you basically end up shipping like a bunch of extra code just in case the browser doesn't support, you know, these latest modern features. And what modern mode does is actually create two separate bundles, one that is served to uh, the, the evergreen, the modern browsers, and one that is served to the other browsers, um, i.e., i.e., <laughs> Yeah, today. <laughs> and that's where I'm looking at the docs here and it says that effectively that will those are modern browsers that support ES modules mm-hmm. coming yep. out of the docs. So. so so you know, if if a browser supports ES modules, there are some assumptions we can make about what the other features that it supports are. That's great. Hey Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show once again. Uh, I think you've really dropped a whole ton of knowledge here for people building view apps and really debunked the question of can Vue be used for enterprise applications. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, happy to help. Appreciate it. Yeah, and we'd like to end our show, as you know, because you've been a return guest here, to do a little nod out to the community and call out someone to follow, somebody that we feel like has inspired us or uh, could be inspiring to other people in the community. And maybe just uh, 
is someone we want to point out to folks. They could have written a great article or done a great uh, repo on GitHub or are just a great person in general. Chris, I'd love to start with you. Okay, so I, I totally recommend following uh, uh, Diana, uh, who is uh, one of our one of our View Vixens, and she also just finished um, with a, a team in uh, in Uruguay, I believe, uh, translating uh, the View Docs, the core View Docs, to Spanish, which is something that we've wanted to do for a long time, and, and she actually made it happen. Uh, so nice. you can you can follow her on on Twitter at uh, Cotufa eighty two. Uh, her name on there is SuperDie, and that's uh, C-O-T-U-F-A-82 on Twitter. Uh, she's j- just a, a really cool person to talk to, too. If you, you know, see at a conference, uh, say hi. And uh, yeah, she's just a really nice person. I'll, I'm going to add somebody else out here. And this is really more of a group. There's a company called This.Media, which is run by Tracy Lee, who's, who's been on our show and also been someone we've called out to, someone to follow. I love Tracy. Tracy just deserves, and her whole company, quite frankly, deserves so much credit for doing so much for making our JavaScript community inclusive. Uh, they helped bring together the Framework Summit. Uh, they don't organize the summit, but they help bring in folks uh, such as Chris and others from Vue and React and Ember and Elm and Angular to have good conversations. And they're always looking at keeping diversity and inclusion uh, number one at the conferences that they're at. I recently was at NG Atlanta. And I'm working with, uh, I believe it was Caitlin, who works with Tracy Lee. And I'm going to put her Twitter address in here. She was just amazing. It's the first time I met her in person. She held some fireside chats and diversity groups, conversations that I thought were just top-notch and really eye-opening. And just, we need more of this. So big call out to the company and to Caitlin specifically. And her Twitter address is the, K-A-E-W-A-Y. Caitlin and Tracy also helped us organize View Contributor Days, uh, as well as the uh, Angular Contributor Days, and I believe React Contributor Days. So yes. they, they do a lot for the JavaScript ecosystem. Yeah, definitely. Dan. Yeah, so I'm going to go with someone you actually know super well, John, because she's involved with you guys. And uh, same with Chris, uh, Sarah Drasner, who probably at this point doesn't need any additional followers. <laughs> I think she's follower count shot up like a rocket over the last year or so, but she has some really awesome content. Um, so I'll paste the uh, link there. And I mean, it's not just on view, it's some phenomenal stuff on SVG as an example and just all things kind of front end web. So check, check her uh, tweets out as well. Yeah. And I want to do a quick correction here. Uh, actually her name is Kaylin, not Caitlin. I've often called her Caitlin and I apologize for that. Caitlin. It's uh, Kaylin St. James was my someone to follow. So, Chris, Dan, thanks again for joining us here for this episode. And thank you, everybody, for listening to us one more week of doing Real Talk JavaScript. And we can hopefully you'll join us every Tuesday morning because that's when we come out. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealTalkJS. 